Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 154. It's titled... Do homeowner tax breaks cause homelessness? Last week, as I exited the grocery store, I saw a woman at the end of the parking lot holding a sign. There was a can of gas by her feet. I put my groceries in the car and walked toward her. Earlier that week, I had read a paper by my son, Brett, on the marginalization of the homeless. His paper referenced a study by E. Krajewska-Kulak, that when people thought of the homeless, the two most common words that came to mind were dirty and poor. Other words included lazy, unhappy, and lonely. This study also showed that 67% of working adults viewed the homeless as avoiding work. In his paper, my son wrote, the homeless seek to have normal interactions with community members. It helps them to keep going and feel more human. It's not difficult to strike up a conversation with a homeless person or even to ask their name. The simple action of attributing a name to a person drastically diminishes the dehumanization toward that individual. Brett's very comfortable visiting with the homeless. He often interviews them. I'm not quite that comfortable doing it. it. It takes some effort. And... But based on his encouragement, and I had just gone to the ATM because I realized one reason I I hardly ever talk to the homeless is I never have any cash with me. And so I I just decided I'm going to get some cash from the ATM. And so I walked over to the woman. She had short brown hair and wore glasses. I didn't ask her name. It just seemed kind of out of place. Instead, I asked where she was from. Mississippi, she said. Jackson, I asked. North Haven, which turns out to be a, a suburb, suburb just south of, of Memphis. I said, you're a long way from here. What brings you to Idaho? And she said, we were visiting my sister and she screwed us over. And so are you heading back to Mississippi? Not in that piece of junk. And she pointed to an old gray minivan in the parking spot next to where we were standing. Inside on the driver's seat, bundled up, In a car seat was an infant girl. On the passenger side, a man sat smoking a cigarette. Where are you living, I asked, and she pointed to the van. She said the homeless shelter had a three-month waiting list. I asked her, are people giving? And, And she said, no, not really. And she, well, she said, I don't think people give to a woman. So we conversed for another minute or so, and I gave her some money, and I wished her well. And as I turned to my car, I noticed tucked away in a bush right there on the corner, there were several other cardboard signs that others had used when asking for help on that corner. Emily Thompson-Molina writes in her book, Housing America, Issues and Debates, 
that the popular images of homelessness, older men, often with mental illnesses, sleeping on urban streets, is increasingly challenged by the reality of homelessness in America. Families make up nearly 40% of the homeless population on any given night in the U.S., and the states with the largest increases in homelessness in recent years are rural. And I've noticed that. Six or seven years ago, I never saw homeless in, in Idaho Falls. And now it's quite common. As of 2015, more than 560,000 people in the U.S. are homeless on any given night. Although it's difficult to get an accurate count. The, the, I think it's the housing and, or the Department of Housing and Urban Development does an official count every two years. But because many of the homeless are doubled up living with friends or family or are hidden away where the volunteers can't find them, it's hard to get a count. But, but HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, they estimate that between the years 2007 and 2015, the largest increases in homeless population were, were mostly rural states, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Vermont, and Mississippi. Most of the homeless, not most, but 20%, the largest percentage in any given state is in California. Two-thirds of them are unsheltered. Now, I don't know what decisions the woman from Mississippi made that resulted in her being homeless and living in a van. I do know her baby girl had nothing to do with it, yet she is facing the consequences of choices made or unfortunate circumstances. Michael B. Katz, in the preface of the second edition of his book, The Undeserving Poor, quotes from Charles Darwin, who wrote in 1839 in The Voyage of the Beagle, his quote is, If the misery of our poor be caused not by the laws of nature, but by our institutions, great is our sin. And and I got to thinking about that as earlier, also last week, I participated when we closed on a house and we're sitting there in the title company's office and she's, she asked, when are we going to occupy? And we said at the beginning of May, and this is like the 13th of April. And she said, well, that's too bad because you, because if you're not going to occupy by April 15th, you're going to miss out on this year's homeowner's exemption. And the said, well, what does that mean? And she says, the, the title agent said, that means you're going to pay more taxes. And I, and I found myself getting angry because I'm missing out on, on this tax break because by about a week or two, because we were going to let the former occupants stay there because they, they weren't ready to move into their home. And then I started to think, well, is there a connection between these tax breaks, this homeowner's exemption where, where homeowners in Idaho and I think 48 other states get reduced property taxes, they own and occupy the home plus the tax breaks that those that have a mortgage get on their mortgage interest rate. Is there some connection between that and the homeless? And, and I think there is. We're going to explore that and to, to explore this whole idea of home ownership, property prices, and the homeless. In, in Katz's book, The Undeserving Poor, he says in the, in the preface, it addresses the great questions that run through debates about poverty since the late 18th century. One of those is how to draw the boundaries between who does and who does not merit help. 
how can we provide help without increasing dependence or creating what economists call moral hazard? And what moral hazard is, is straight from Wikipedia, that occurs when one person takes more risk because someone else bears the cost of those risks. If we help the homeless too much, do they have less incentive to work? Other questions that Katz covers is, what are the limits of social responsibility? What do we owe the poor and to each other? It's not easy to make those distinctions, particularly if poverty and homelessness is a combination of both personal decisions and structural issues in the economy. Research shows that homelessness increases when the economy suffers, and homelessness is greater in places with higher rents and fewer vacancies. In other words, over the past few decades, there has been fundamental changes to the economy and the housing market that contribute to homelessness among families, even as choices by individual family members can help determine who is homeless. For example, the transition to a service-based economy and the loss of manufacturing jobs, both from offshoring to other countries and through automation, such as robots, has led to stagnating wages. The U.S. Census Bureau reports that U.S. median household income increased last year, but it remains very close to the same level it was in 1998. And household income for the poorest 10% of households is 6% lower than it was in 2006. So median household income, despite the bump last year, has essentially stagnated since 1998. And for for the poorest, it's still below where it was at the beginning of the Great Recession. There's a paper that I'll link to in the show notes, or if you remember my insider's guide, my free insider's guide, I'll email you all the links to this week's podcast episode, as well as a summary article, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com, or if you are a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222, and I'll send you that, that those, those weekly free emails. So the paper is called Robots and Jobs, Evidence from U.S. Labor Market. It was just published in March 2017. It's by Darren Ismoglu and Pascual Restrepo. And they found that robots are to blame for up to 670,000 lost manufacturing jobs between 1990 and 2007. And, and they see the rise becoming even greater as industrial robots are expected to quadruple. quadruple. And, and in their study, for every robot per thousand workers within a particular local area, up to six workers lost their jobs. And wages fell by as much as three-fourths of a percent. So wages went down, unemployment went up when robots were added as people lost their jobs. Now, that, that, that degree of job loss is less nationally because the idea is new jobs will be created as automation takes place. That's how it's always worked. And we talked a little bit about that last week. But it's, it's still a concern because it, the, the evidence that's coming through and it's certainly there in median household income is that automation over the past decade has not led to rising wages. It has led to stagnating wages as U.S. has transitioned to a more service-based economy. Now, while household income has stagnated, the price of housing and rents has increased. 
that makes it more difficult for lower-income families to secure housing. Here's some data from Haver Analytics. The median home price for an existing home is $260,000 as of February 2017. That's 4.1 times the median household income. That's above, that's, that's more than one standard deviation above its long-term average going back to 1976 of 3.6 times median household income. That's the average that existing homes cost. Now it's 4.1. It got as high as 4.8 at the top of the property bubble and as low as 3.3 at the bottom. But we've been in increasing to where nominal home prices are pretty much at the level where they were at the top of the bubble. They rose last year by 7.6%. Meanwhile, median new home prices, the the stats I just gave you were for existing. So the new home prices, the median is $310,000 and it sells for 5.4 times median household income. That's two standard deviations away from its average of 4.3. So if something is two standard deviations away, that means it's, 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 It's a pretty wide deviation. It's well above average. Now, part of that is houses are are bigger. They have more amenities, so that does lead to higher home prices. But it's more difficult for the average American to buy a house. The NAHB Wells Fargo Housing Opportunity Index measures the percentage of homes sold to families earning, earning the median income now, what percentage of new homes and existing homes that are available can the median earner, median family earner or household during a given quarter buy? So as of 12-31-2016, the median family could only afford to buy about 59 or 60% of the homes that are on the market. Now, that, that's below average. 60, the average is 62%. So on average, they've been able to buy 62% of the homes available. That's in 1995. At the top of the bubble, they could only afford 42%, hence a bubble. And at the bottom, 76%. The bottom line is incomes are stagnating, but prices for homes and for rent are going up. The accepted standard for housing affordability is for households to pay no more than 30% of income toward housing. According to the American Housing Survey in 2013, 37% of American households paid more than 30% of their monthly income on housing-related costs. Households that pay such a high percentage of their income toward housing costs are vulnerable to economic shocks, such as job losses, that can leave them homeless. There's little margin of safety. It leaves them less money to cover food, transportation, and other costs. So uh, using data by the U.S. Census Bureau, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition found that 71% of extremely low-income households spend more than half of their income on rent and utilities. And they define extremely low income as having either below the poverty level or earning 30% of a particular area's median household income, whichever is higher. So here, here was kind of a stunning example. So a family of four earning 30% of the national weighted average median household income would have monthly take-home pay of $1,690. They would then spend on average about $846 on rent. So that's half their income, leaving them $844 for other expenses. 
The U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates a thrifty food budget for a family of four, two adults and two children, is $655. So we take that out of the $844. That leaves only $189 a month for transportation, child care, medical costs, and other necessities. And that's not even considering health insurance, a family for health insurance without subsidy, probably close to $1,200, at least here in Idaho. This low-income family, $189 after paying rent and food. Of the 43.6 million renter households in the U.S., 11.4 million are classified as extremely low income. Yet there's only about 7.5 million houses and apartments available for them that they could rent at a rate that is 30% or less of their income. And of that 7.5 million houses, about half of them are already rented to people that, that have higher incomes, leaving an even smaller amount of houses available to those with very low income. So the question is, why aren't there more homes available at affordable rents? Before I answer that, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com David for your extended 30-day free trial. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com David. That's netsuite.com David. netsuite.com David. 
So we've looked at why incomes are stagnating, but why are rents and housing costs going up? Why are there not more affordable rents? First, the cost to develop a new apartment is significantly higher per apartment than the $507 a month that extremely low-income household can afford. The median rent for an apartment in a multifamily structure built in 2015 was $1,381 per month, according to the Joint Center for Housing Studies. The National Low Income Housing Coalition reports that a full-time minimum wage worker cannot afford a one-bedroom apartment at the fair market rent in a single U.S. state. Now, this is all due to supply and demand when it comes to apartments, because one of the things that makes it difficult is is zoning. It just costs a lot to develop because you have to you can only build in in certain zones, and sometimes there's geographic restrictions, and that can drive up cost. Here's how Ed Glazer and Joe Giorgo explained it in their paper, The Economic Implications of Housing Supply. They write, the fundamental nature of building is that it creates a significant concentrated benefit for the landowner who is developing and widespread harm to almost everyone else from the inconvenience of construction and downward pressure on housing values from increased supply. In a system where democracy is limited by lobbying and corruption, the interests of developers can dominate. Conversely, if decisions are made by majority vote, development projects face a considerable disadvantage, especially since many of the potential beneficiaries of a new project may not live in the jurisdiction when the project is debated. If this view is correct, then the great transformation is unlikely to be reversed unless there are means of compensating existing residents for the downsides of development. So restrictive zoning benefits the homeowners and the apartment owners already in place. And and as a result, it, it makes it more difficult and expensive for new development particularly lower-priced development that might be using some government subsidies to provide affordable housing. The way it's supposed to work in theory is there's a filtering effect. So new construction comes online and higher-income families move into the pricier structures. That frees up lower-income households to move into the newly available older, older homes and apartments. But unfortunately, this filtering effect doesn't seem to help the extremely low-income households. The National Home Income Housing Coalition writes in their March 2017 report, it's called The Gap, A Shortage of Affordable Homes, that in strong markets, owners have an economic incentive to redevelop their properties for higher-income renters. In weak markets, owners have an incentive to abandon their properties when rent revenues no longer cover basic operating costs and maintenance. From 2003 to 2013, filtering increased the supply of low-cost rental units with monthly rents of less than $800 by only 4.6%, which is not enough to offset the permanent loss of other similarly priced units. So you got the lower priced units are being abandoned because the property owners just they're not getting enough rent to maintain them, and the supply of new lower priced units just isn't enough to compensate that. Finally, we have a situation where property developers find that they can earn higher profits, higher profit margins by building more expensive homes and higher-end apartment units. We have a situation where there's just not a sufficient supply of affordable housing, particularly for extremely low-income families. They're paying upwards of 50% or more to get housing because they're, they're vulnerable to economic shocks, particularly during recessions. 
then the the number of homeless families is increasing. It's not necessarily by choice, but it's because they just can't aren't able to to find the houses that they want. But how is it families can afford these larger, more expensive homes? And so you have developers that that are building them because they earn higher profits. But in order to do that, with wages stagnating, how is it people are affording homes? Well, we can thank the tax code for that. In 2014, the federal government provided $140 billion of preferential tax treatment by allowing homeowners to take a tax deduction for mortgage interest and property taxes. And the Congressional Budget Office, that's where I got those numbers, they report this subsidy accrues mostly to households in the highest income quintile. Higher income can afford bigger houses that the developers are building because they get a tax break on their mortgage interest. This tax break for home interest deductibility, mortgage interest deductibility, property tax deductibility dwarfs what the federal government provides in terms of low-income housing help. The, the tax breaks, $140 billion plus per year. Low-income housing help, about $50 billion per year. A primary way, preferred way, is the Housing Choice Voucher Program. The U.S. government spends $18 billion a year on that in 2014. The way that that works is a low-income household that qualifies. They pay 30% of their income toward rent. They can rent anywhere in in a given community, assuming the landlord will take them. And then the federal government, working through the local public housing authority, pays the remainder of the rent. Emily Thompson Molina points out that housing vouchers have several advantages. She writes, theoretically, they allow qualifying households to live in the qualifying units of their choice, expanding their options beyond where existing public housing and Section 8 projects are located. Subsidizing rents is also cheaper than building a new affordable housing. Vouchers can also stabilize weak housing markets, help households who would not otherwise be able to compete in in tight housing markets, and provide struggling landlords with stable rental income to maintain their projects, theoretically preventing rental units from deteriorating to the point of abandonment. But we need landlords willing to to accept these vouchers. And then there is the moral hazard aspect. If you're getting a housing voucher, does that discourage you from earning potentially more income? Right now, there are not enough housing vouchers to to supply the low income. There's way more people qualified that can get housing vouchers. The federal government is not funding this program enough. It's choosing to fund the tax breaks for those that have mortgages. And as a result, since there's not enough of these housing vouchers, that means a lot of low-income households are paying way more than 30%. They're paying upwards of 50% or more to get housing. And that is increasing the homelessness, which is why tax policy actually leads to some homelessness from a structural aspect, recognizing that individual decisions by families can lead to homelessness. So it comes down to, is housing a fundamental right? Does the government have a responsibility to, to, to make sure its citizens have adequate housing? In, in Mexico, I've seen it's not a fundamental right. I have seen, you see these shanty towns that, that spring up. I mean, the government tries to help out, but ultimately there's not the social safety net to, to, to provide in Mexico as you see these shanty towns. 
But you see it in the U.S. also. Apparently right now, as we have this national debate, is housing is not a fundamental right because a homeless population is immense. More and more homeless are families because they can't get access to housing because wages are stagnating from an economic standpoint because the, tr- the transition of the economy. At the same time, housing and rent prices are going up due to, to reduced supply, partially because of restrictive donors or restrictive zoning. Well, what can be done about this? Well, one option is to reduce the home interest deduction on mortgages that exceed the median home price in a local area. So we can't just say, well, any mortgage over 500000 it the, the interest is deductible or you no, will no longer be deductible because you have different housing price markets. But if you focus it more on regional and, and the super-sized mortgages don't get the home interest deduction, that could free up more money for these voucher programs. But there's going to be a national debate because in 2013, when the government, the federal government shut down, there were about 100,000 of these vouchers that did not get funded. And as we look at the upcoming budget cycle with Congress and the executive branch with the new federal budget starts in October 1st, what will be funded in terms of these housing priorities? So we'll see what happens. But in the meantime, we, I recall in, in Seattle many years ago seeing a, a teenage girl, maybe she was in her 20s, she was begging, and, and her sign said, poor, ugly girl. And, and everybody walked by, and, including myself. And, and at least what we can do is help out where we can. We can acknowledge the humanity of the homeless. We can talk to them. We can get over our fear of doing so. I, I'm certainly going to try to do a better job of that. Have a dialogue. See, see how things are going. Help out where we can. And, and maybe locally. I mean, the, one of the big issues is the criminal, criminalization of homelessness. Support local initiatives to help the homeless and, and not criminalize them for being homeless, which means arresting them for <laughs> For, for being in a park or for kicking them out of the library. And, and these are sort of the debates we need to have at the local level. But what I found fascinating about it, and the real point was how structural, uh, structural issues with the economy, the transition uh, of the economy, the, the greater productivity and automation of the economy, and, and, and tax policy and government policy has an impact and can have an, often you can see that impact on the margin. All these structural issues are having an impact on the margin. The, the homeless, the, the, the lowest income population is, is getting the brunt of some of these structural issues and it's something we just need to be aware of and, and work with our political leader, leaders and local community to address. So that's episode 154. As I mentioned, show notes are available at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I share with you in this episode has been for general education only and not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.